This is the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by Syraclad, featuring one-on-one interviews with designers, contractors, city managers, and civic leaders, as well as thought leaders committed to sustainability, innovation, and solutions that are attractive, affordable, and create healthy living environments. Our podcast illuminates the challenges, breakthroughs, and proven solutions brought to industries, organizations, and our communities. From the office and manufacturer of Syraclad in Redmond, Washington, and on location, this is the Architecture and Innovation Podcast. For our guest today, we're honored and uh, and excited to welcome Phil Hatterley. Phil is principal at VCBO and president of the Utah AIA and has a master's of architecture from the University of Utah and has been a licensed architect since 2006. It's also provided professional architectural design and project management services on a wide variety of projects since 1996. Phil's expertise spans many architectural project types, including recreation, higher education, institutional, corporate design, and religious architecture. For more information, feel free to visit the website at vcbo.com. Again, that's vcbo.com. Phil. Thank you very much for being on the show. We're really honored and excited to uh, excited to talk to you today. Thank you. No, no problem, Tom. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, Phil, you know, there's I, I notice you know, a lot of your work. It's, it's uh, well, for lack of a better word, I think there's range. Is that by design? It's not just one facet of architecture, but it, 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 there, from what I've seen, you've got a, a range of architectural work. Yeah, I haven't really settled into any set kind of building type. I've kind of always been able to bounce around and uh, kind of bring my philosophy to every type of building type. And and that's been kind of valuable here at VCBO. I've been able to jump around and help where needed. So, Yeah, when when you say uh, jump around where needed, but your your expertise is pretty ferocious. I know that may be a strange word to hear about it, but it's... um, very thorough, and I don't use that word very often, but it, your work is very thorough. Is that, obviously it's by design, but is that also kind of a part of uh, you, your upbringing, your, your um, principles of life? Yeah, I just learned a uh, good work, work ethic, I guess, from my dad growing up and uh, was one of these guys that kind of got hooked on Legos. I know that's kind of cliche, <laughs> but... Uh, Loved, loved kind of figuring out how things go together and uh, always kind of had a technical mind. And in ninth grade, I just decided to be an architect and I've just been on that path ever since and just kind of devour anything that I can learn about um, to help make projects better. So, On that, the, the ninth grade is when you, I guess for lack of a better word, received a calling that this is what you want to do is you want to be an architect. Yeah, I took a class. Uh, I was in high school in Evanston, Wyoming, of all places, and uh, took a class that was half welding and half kind of mechanical drafting, and I just really got hooked on the drafting part of it. So then then I just knew that that was, that was where I was going to be. So Now, how about the teachers that you had had? Were they encouraging as well? Yeah, they were. Um, I think his name was Larry Wagstaff, and he's uh, he was a mentor to me and helped me. And and then I have an uncle who is an architect. He he currently teaches um, 
architectural design at University of uh, at Utah State University, and he was very encouraging to set me on this path. His name is Steve Mansfield. Shout out to Uncle Steve. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, on that uh, subject, how important do you feel that mentors are? We'll stay with the architecture and design. How important are they to the trajectory of your career? It's really critical that you find uh, people that you can connect with that can help you through through all the hoops that you have to jump through. I mean, becoming an architect is not an easy journey. There's a lot of you know things you got to go through, and, and and to have somebody there that understands uh, the process is is really valuable. Can you? Uh pinpoint a time or two, Phil, that uh, where if there was ever a time where being an architect was maybe something you had questioned or it was particularly challenging that you know, a mentor or, or uh, instructor or even a, a family member was encouraging to help you get through that? I actually had the opposite experience. I was in my first year of college and I decided maybe I should take a semester and be an art major and just see if I really am on the right path. And uh, I took an art class and my art teacher said, you're, you're never gonna be an architect. You, you don't draw good enough, you know? And I thought, man, what, what a terrible thing to say to somebody to just crash their dreams, <laughs> you know? So uh, I kind of took that as motivation to be an architect, you know, to say, you know, I'll show you. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. How important do you think actually are, are detractors in hindsight? Uh, they may be just as important in some cases, uh, more important than those who support us. What's your thought on that? I mean, I just came up with that. Yeah, maybe maybe opposition in in the journey is something that uh, also pushes us to excel. You know, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to sign up for a lot of detractors and opposers <laughs> along the way, but... Uh, <laughs> I think I think when you set your mind to something and and you want to do that, then I think uh, you just find a way no matter what, you know. In architecture, a number of uh, many times it's come up that some of of uh, people's great work comes from constraints, whether it's budget, uh, planning board, commission city uh, communities that the constraints of a specific project actually inspire uh, a great project what's your your thoughts on that yeah i mean you've got to see the constraints not as uh being kind of limited into a box but it actually forces you to think creatively and and push through those constraints so the, the most elegant architecture, I think, is is architecture that can fulfill all those constraints yet still excel at at doing what you need it to do. So, I mean, code requirements, city requirements, budget, and all that is uh, it it works to shape the design of the building, really. You know, and and by complying with all those things, you're actually making the building so that it can serve its purpose right and on the subject of serving its purpose another observation i had with your work is you appear to design and work with uh, a project and a building from a human perspective and point first 
not just a structural. Is that that's my take? And you might disagree. I'm definitely in the form follows function camp, and the function is to to meet the human needs. And I, I kind of think that um, our best architecture comes from developing um, the best kinds of relationships. So really before you design a building, you're, you're actually kind of connecting with the team, bringing in the right people, uh, making a strong relationship to clients and to contractors that are all kind of become part of your team. And that's the, the strength of those relationships and the depth of those relationships, I think is directly attributable to how well your project turns out and how good your design is really, you know, it's, and so um, I've kind of focused on the technical side of architecture, but now as a principal and as a, as a president in the AIA, I'm, I'm developing more of those relationships as well, which are so important to the process. Yeah. Can you share with us your, uh, your work as president of the IAA in uh, Utah and how, those relationships are vital. Yeah, so the AIA is a professional organization, right, of, of a bunch of architects. So I don't think that people see all the time the value in being a member of the AIA because you're not there really rubbing shoulders with clients and things. But I have been able to make relationships here with other architects in the state. And I, I've found as I've gone through this whole process that all of us have similar uh, problems and issues within the profession. And I'm, I'm hearing that the, the problems we have are common to others. And I've also kind of been impressed that uh, we all get together, even though we compete against each other in this kind of small Utah market, we do come together when, it's, when it counts and when it's important. And one of the things that we've really been kind of working on is making sure that people understand what architects do and what the value is that we bring to the community and to problem solving as a whole. Outstanding. You're listening to the Architecture and Innovation Podcast presented by Cereclad. We're talking today with Phil Hatterley, Principal at VCBO and President of the Utah AIA. For more information, please visit vcbo.com. Again, that's vcbo.com. Phil, can you share what recent projects you've worked on or are working on? If you're at liberty to share them with us, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but uh, I think your audience would love to hear some of the projects you're working on. Yeah, so I've worked on a corporate campus here in uh, Pleasant Grove. It's a small town south of Salt Lake, and it's uh, more than a million square feet of office space, labs, manufacturing. Uh, very, very kind of fulfilling project, very um, good relationship, worked, worked on that campus for 10 years in multiple phases, and just really an honor to work on that project. And then I just recently wrapped up uh, a junior high up in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and a very successful completion to that project. And then also right now I'm working in Texas and Arkansas and Hawaii on uh, buildings for my church client. Um, the church here is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we do work for them all over the world and right now in those three states. And that's always pushing us to go to the next level. So 
Yeah, I like that. Um, fulfilling projects. It, it to, Your work has a, a, a spirit sense to all of it. Is that, again, based on your faith uh, or just just built into you as a, uh, just kind of how you're wired, Phil? I've never heard anybody say that about my work. Um, I don't know what it is about, about it. I think uh, here at VCBO, we strive to make projects that, that fit well with the local culture, the local vernacular, but also to meet the needs of, of people and to really listen to those needs and, and implement those. We've never been uh, an architecture firm that has a set style or set anything. You know, it's just always based on what the local budget is, what the local vernacular and what the needs are in each of the places. But, but on the spiritual side that, you know, um, with the church client that I have, I am a member of the same faith. And so that definitely there is, um, it's interesting when you, uh, you work for the church that you're also a member of and, uh, you, you do put more, maybe effort into those things because of the spiritual connection that you have. So I like that. that you helped set that one up with your, the fulfilling project. And I went, well, I've not heard an architect talk about fulfilling. I know they do feel fulfilled, but segue a bit onto even some of the scholastic projects that you've worked on, that there is a got to be a fulfillment when you go that, that final day or days where you go, you know, we're really wrapping this up. What's that like for you to experience that? Well, I, part of the things that I just love about architecture, I just love that we put things on paper and then it becomes reality. And you look at the building and a building is almost like stages of uh, childhood. And then the, it's almost like when the building is finished, it's like it moves out on its own and, and you send it off. You kind of become an empty nester, right? Because <laughs> you send your building out into the world and it, it, then it's uh, out there performing the way that you designed it to be. But it always blows my mind that we see these things in 3D and we design them and build them and, and then they become a reality. And it's, it's really amazing to watch um, people coming into a building for the first time like on this junior high, we, we were able to see, you know, how the kids interacted with the building on, on back to school night right after we had the ribbon cutting. And it's and then I'll walk through buildings and watch how people use the building and how they live in the building. And it's just like, oh, that's they, they use that space a little differently than I thought, but it's still good, you know, and, and the building kind of evolves over time as people use it. Here's a, a take I've said on a number of shows, Phil, is that everyone, we all have books, of course. We all know what books are. And there's, a, there's always an author of a book, and you know who the author is, or it's least listed, even the publisher. What would have to happen, especially since you're president of the AIA in Utah, to have every building have at least an acknowledgement of the architect and the builder? It doesn't have to be a giant placard, like you've seen some of them with real brass and rivets, but just an acknowledgement of, of the building. And I've likened it to, it's not too dissimilar to a book. Imagine some of the greatest books in the world, but we didn't know who wrote them. It was like, oh, it's a great book. I don't know who wrote it, but it was sort of great. Buildings to me are the same. Homes are the same. They didn't just appear. Somebody came through an idea in their mind, 
in their heart and they put it to, as you said earlier, paper and actually created it. What's your thoughts on, on that? I don't know if you could ever mandate something like that, but at least to uh, we, suggest it. We put a little bronze plaque into okay. all of our school projects, you know, and you'll see that at the kind of front entry of the school. And it's, Excellent. it's good to kind of recognize the efforts of the team who put it together and who put their heart and soul into that design. And maybe, you know, we'll recognize the school board or whoever was involved. We have on the religious side of things, um, those buildings are dedicated edifices to God, right? And so in that case, uh, because it's his house, his, his uh, project, then um, I don't really want my name on it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's more the feeling that he inspires us to do the things that we should do in the design, and, and we give credit to him for that. So there's different ways of looking at it, right? Um, but it, certainly on public projects, we'd like to get our name out there as much as possible. We do a lot of things where we will tour clients through existing buildings, and that is always a great marketing thing. Or, or people will see our name on a plaque on a building, and we'll get projects from that. So it's a good marketing tool as well. Excellent. Really happy to hear that. What's uh, changed in the last, say, uh, two, three years in your experience, Phil, um, and how building, buildings and the built environment has evolved? What's changed in the last two or three years? I mean, that's a broad question, but specifically, if you can think of like what's really changed in the last two to three years in architecture and design. I'm not sure if I can put my finger on a specific issue, but it just seems like everything is faster, more complicated, more, um, I don't know, there's just so many facets to the complexity of what we do. I, I don't think that people understand the full depth of everything the architects do in a day-to-day -day and, and, and the hours and, you know, thousands of hours that goes into a project and all the decisions that are made. And now we have, you know, 3D software that does clash detection. We have um, early design assist contractors coming in. We'll do a set of shop drawings on a building during design because we've got to do early procurement to meet schedules. Um, it's just the complexity of everything and the speed that everything is going is 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 crazy. But uh, we're keeping up with it. We're trying to stay on the cutting edge. You know, there's all the requirements and the constraints about, you know, net zero and sustainability and those things as well that are are becoming more and more critical as time goes by. So there's a lot. It's uh, I was just on the phone last week. We did our conference and we were able to chat with uh, National President Peter Exley and what what a exciting time to be an architect. Uh, you know, we've got so many huge challenges out there, but it's also just a really exciting time to be an architect and to be alive during this time and try to help solve problems. Outstanding. You're listening to the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by Siraclad. Our acknowledgement for uh, Phil's show today is for the Choice Humanitarian. Choice Humanitarian's work is uh, they envision a world in which people everywhere have the choice and the means to live in peace, prosperity, and freedom. Their mission 
is to support the efforts of people around the world to end extreme poverty and build self-reliant, resilient communities. For more information, you can find them on the web at choicehumanitarian.org. Again, that is choicehumanitarian.org. We're talking today with Phil Hatterley, principal at VCBO and president of the Utah AIA. For more information, you can visit their website at vcbo.com. Again, vcbo.com. Phil, on that, the topic of net zero and sustainability, how has that even changed in the last couple of years? It's been kind of incredible. Um, we've been able to, we've, we've done the first net zero school in Utah and that's now becoming a model for other school districts and they walk through it and they see, you know, we've proven that the, the building can pay for itself over time, just with the energy savings. And I've got a similar situation in, in Hawaii right now where we're looking at redoing a, a, a college campus there. And we're looking at what's the life cycle cost savings of the, the utilities and just how, by redoing a campus, by taking down old and replacing with new, we can actually make better, more efficient buildings, more sustainable, which use less energy. And so over time, you look at the life cycle cost of the existing buildings and the energy hogs that they are versus a new building. And you can start to see that there's a huge cost savings, you know, in doing that. So I, I haven't, uh, done a huge focus on that. I've been a lead uh, certified professional, you know, for since the beginning, probably since 2011 or something, but uh, lead, lead has kind of lost some, um, some of its dry. I haven't done a lead project in a while, but a lot of people are fully on board with the idea of of energy savings, and I think if you if we sell uh, sustainability in that light, I think I think there's a lot of headway that we can make with it. Just talking about the financial benefits um, and, and the comfort and all that too, you know, user comfort. How important is the relationship, um, not a, a versus design, but if you were to put a number to relationship in your interface with people? And your actual, when you put pen to paper or, or you're on the CAD or you're doing design work, is the relationship even more so than, than the design or design facets or the, uh, the actual tangible work? The relationship drives the design. And so if you have a, an owner that trusts you and you've shown that you are bringing value to them, you can move through design much quicker and they, they trust you. you. You show them the design and then they say, yeah, let's, let's do it. We're, we're on board with you. And so it's always amazing to me that somebody is willing to invest millions of dollars in building a building. And, um, and it's all something that we come up with and we put on paper. Right. And uh, they have to have trust in their architect and in their team and their contractor, their engineers, and so we're very careful about maintaining those good, strong relationships. I think probably 75, 80% of all the work that we have at VCBO is from repeat clients, you know, and we, we've got a school district now where we've done over 50 buildings for them in the last, you know, 
20, 30 years. And so that's it's a huge thing. And, and we, we know what they like. We know what they don't like. We know what their standards are. We know everything about them. So it's huge. It's hugely important to the design process to have strong relationships. What would you like to share, Phil, that we may not have touched on during uh, your show today? Well, one thing uh, I've been recently working on is um, as AI president, I was able to touch base with Salt Lake City. And our one of our goals as, as the AIA is to demonstrate the relevance of architects to members of the community. And we do that through getting involved with community service projects and things. And Salt Lake City came to us and asked them to help, asked us to help them design a a design competition for to help them solve a critical housing shortage that we have here in Utah. And so we've met, been meeting with them for the last six months and we're actually in the middle of a, an international design competition that is uh, looking for design ideas for tiny homes and ADUs to be uh, built here in Salt Lake. So that's not really part of my normal uh, thing that I designed, but I've, I've been, it's been a huge, uh, just very satisfying to be involved in that and to be able to show they, the city will walk away knowing that architects made a difference. And I think I'm sure this podcast is another way of just getting people educated about what, what do architects do? How can we solve problems? How, you know, because the problem is um, architects, I think, overall are unpaid as a profession, under underpaid, not unpaid. But, uh, you know, we're, we're not, uh, people don't see the value in what we do. They don't understand us. Um, you talk to everybody and uh, a lot of people will say, well, I wanted to be an architect when I grew up, but I didn't because X, Y, Z, right? They always say that. Yes. But, uh, I think I think we need to... Just keep doing things like that. So I, I wanted to highlight that because that's been a, a fun process. We're not all the way through it yet. We're just receiving our design submissions for it now. So, Phil, it's been a real honor and pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been fun. Thank you. Our guest today has been Phil Hatterley. Phil is principal at VCBO and president of the Utah AIA and has a master's of architecture from the University of Utah and has been a licensed architect since 2006. Phil has provided professional architectural design and project management services on a wide variety of projects since 1996 and his expertise spans many architectural project types including recreation, higher education, institutional, corporate design, and religious architecture. For more information, you're free to visit vcbo.com. Again, vcbo.com. You've been listening to the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by Siraclad. Our podcast is recorded from the office of Siraclad in Redmond, Washington, and on location. The executive producer and host is Tom Dioro. Thank you.